0: Well, thank you so much for the rich uh, music today. What a uh, encouragement to my heart uh, that's been. And uh, again, thank you to Tom and the elders for giving us this opportunity to be here with you. As Tom uh, mentioned this morning, we've known each other for a long time, and he also mentioned that uh, he and Sheila and Pam and I, the four of us, vacationed together uh, a couple of years ago or so in Italy and you know, that's the real test of friendship right there, okay? What's the relationship like, you know, when the vacation is over? Are you still friends? And we are. So it was a great time. I mean, how can anybody not like Tom and Sheila? How can anybody not like my wife? So I was the odd one out in the whole mix of the three of them figuring out what to do and how to make it work. So God gave them grace and comfort and and we were able to do that. So I've just enjoyed being here today and, and uh, love this church uh, from afar, and so uh, we always uh, are grateful for an opportunity to fellowship with you. I'm one of those uh, individuals who love mountains. I live in an area where it's very hilly, it's the foothills, and we're not far from the from the mountains, but I'm more of a mountain person than I am a beach person. Uh, My wife is the opposite of that. She's a beach person. And so we have to make that work somehow. Just about a month ago, my whole family, uh, my four adult children and two grandkids and a daughter-in-law and uh, a boyfriend of my daughters and my wife and I, we all uh, went on vacation together to the beach, North Carolina, to the to uh, what's right below the, the Outer Banks. And it's a beautiful area, but I'm just not a beach person. They all are. And so this is how I handled the trip. I, I did go to the drugstore, and I bought the highest, what do you call that, SPF rating <laughs> spray you can put on. And unfortunately, the highest was 100. So I bought that, and I soaked myself from head to toe with that every day. And then I wore long sleeves, I wore a big floppy hat, and before the trip, I went online and I found a beach chair that has its own umbrella hooked onto it. So that, that's the way I did the beach uh, a month ago. And I would sit out there like that for a good hour during the, during the day, and then I would go back into the beach house and read and study. I'm a mountain person. I love the Appalachians near us. I love the Rockies, the Alps. And there is quite a contrast in those ranges. They they don't all look alike. Well, tonight I'm inviting you to go on a trip to the mountains with me, but it's not the Appalachians and it's not the Rockies, it's not the Alps. We don't visit these mountains by car or by plane, We're going to take a trip tonight to Mount Sinai and as well Mount Zion, and we will do this via a passage that's once again in Hebrews chapter 12. So we're just staying in Hebrews 12 today. I figure if you found it once this morning, you know, you could still find it tonight. If you're having trouble, it's right after Hebrews 11. In this passage, we see the contrast between these two mountains is a contrast that is far greater, actually, than the difference between the the Alps and the Appalachian Range. And as I did this morning, just a word about the book of Hebrews... The, the, the book as a whole is a, it's just a rich study of the superiority of Christ and the superiority of the gospel message as compared to what is found in the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And as I mentioned this morning, the, the author was writing to mostly Jews who had converted to Christianity, but who were facing increased persecution due to their testimony of faith in Christ. And some of them were even considering returning to the relative safety of Judaism. And if they really did that, abandon their profession of faith, then they were making it evident that they were not true followers of Christ after all. So the author was encouraging the readers to persevere in their faith, even Despite the persecution, in particular, chapter 12 makes the point, as we saw this morning, that the Christian life is a marathon race. It's a race we must endure to the end. And God helps us in that race. He helps us persevere as he uses all the events of our life, including our suffering and our trials, to strengthen us and correct us and instruct us. And that very short summary brings us to our passage now tonight, verses 18-18. To 24, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Here, the author of Hebrews gives us the blessings and assurance that we have in Christ, contrasted to the judgment that's sure to come to anyone who rejects Christ or abandons Christ. It is this contrast that's represented then by the two mountains I mentioned to you, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Under the old covenant, Israel, the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation, that nation was called by God to assemble before Him at a mountain called Mount Sinai. But people encounter the Lord now under the new covenant represented here by Mount Zion. Ultimately then, the contrast between these that's depicted between these two mountains is the contrast between the law and the gospel. Now as I read the passage, I want you to notice the contrast is governed by the same verb that's found in verse 18 and is found again in verse 22, it's the verb come. Verse 18 says you have not come and then verse 22 says but you have come. So here is the passage, verses 18 to 24. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus The mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So let's examine these two mountains here tonight that we find in this passage. And here's what we're going to call them. Number one, the mountain of judgment. Number two, the mountain of acceptance. First, the mountain of judgment. Now, as you know, the nation of Israel was once in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God at his appointed time did deliver his people from that bondage, and he chose Moses to be the leader of that rescue mission. He chose Moses to lead them then out of bondage and then to a particular mountain so that they could worship God. And this mountain was Mount Sinai. It was at Mount Sinai that God gave Moses the law. Therefore, when Israel assembled at Mount Sinai to meet with God, they were overwhelmed with the reality of who God is, that he is a holy God. They were overwhelmed with the reality that that necessitates, that he hate sin and that he judge sin. And the recognition of that was frightening for them. How frightening was it? Well, the author here lists the various manifestations at Sinai that they experienced, the nation of Israel experienced, when they approached it. And there are basically two types of these manifestations, visible manifestations and audible manifestations. Let's look first at the visible manifestations. Verse 18, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, now the mountain is not named here, but clearly in this context it is Mount Sinai. Sinai was and is a literal mountain, it's a tangible physical mountain which is the point of the phrase that can be touched. You could see it, you could touch it, you could walk on it. It was there at Mount Sinai then that God gave Moses the law, how they were to to live in covenant with this holy, righteous God, this this law that God gave them, that was God's gracious gift to them, a gracious gift to the nation. But it was a law that said things like like this, do this and don't do that or you'll be judged. And in some cases, it said you do this and you'll die. That's what made this a a covenant then, ultimately, that it revolved around judgment and fear. Well, the terms that follow now are the terrifying description of what the people then experienced that day as they gathered there at Mount Sinai. You can try to visualize this. Verse 18 says that when the people of the Old Testament approached Mount Sinai, they came to a blazing fire. In other words, the mountain itself burned with fire as God descended upon it. It was the fire that, that, that could be felt by the people as they stood there around the, the base of the mountain. I mean, it was hot, so hot it was destructive power that was this barrier to access to the mountain, a deadly barrier. And verse 18 says it was also enveloped in darkness and gloom, this idea of blackness caused by this thick cloud that covered the mountain that was including the smoke from the fire. Plus, it says in verse 18, in whirlwind. It's a a strong wind, a a storm-like wind. Now, you get more data about all of this back in the Old Testament, obviously, in Exodus chapter 19. So I'll read a a few excerpts here and there. Exodus 19 tells us what accompanied all of this. Here's verses 16 and 18 of Exodus 19. There were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. So the whole scene just was emphasizing the incredible majesty of God and the holiness of God. Visible manifestations, but second, also audible manifestations And and all the audible things certainly heightened the Israelite sense of of this fear, verse 19, and to the blast of a trumpet. A a trumpet was a way of conveying the presence of, of authority. And again, back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 19, it says that the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And if that wasn't enough, our verse 19 says that God began speaking. Hebrews 12, 19, and the sound of words. Deuteronomy is also a place where we get some insight here. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12 puts it this way. Then the Lord spoke from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Exodus 19 says that God's words to Moses sounded like thunder Well, it's interesting how the people responded to all this. Verse 19 continues, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. I mean, the noise that resulted from all of this caused such fear that the Israelites, they were just not able to endure it. So you can can visualize this begging God to stop speaking. God did approve their request scripture tells us and he agreed to speak to them through Moses instead and here is one thing in particular that God did say to them that contributed to their fear here's the original form Exodus 19:12 you shall set bounds for the people all around saying beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death That included an animal touching it. If an animal did wander over too close to the mountain, and if the animal touched that holy mountain, the people were required to kill it either by stoning it or elsewhere it says they could kill it uh, with like a spear or a javelin. The point being that they had to use a method of killing the animal that did not involve touching it. Because the animals defiled, and they didn't want to touch that defiled animal, then they would be defiled, and they they had to kill it in such a way that they didn't get too close to the mountain themselves. That's a pretty scary situation. And verse 20 of our text confirms that, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So you put all this together, and here's what you have Mount Sinai representing, the absolute unapproachableness of God. Sinful man cannot come near him and still live. Well, understandably, the people were gripped with fear. And what's amazing is even that Moses was gripped with fear. Verse 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Don't you find that amazing? That Moses was fearful about all this? I mean, it's not like he hadn't seen things like this before. This is Moses. He's the one who had witnessed the presence and voice of the Lord at the burning bush. That was quite a memory for him. Moses had witnessed all the plagues in Egypt, the awesome power of, of God evidenced in all those plagues. He'd seen all that. He'd witnessed God delivering the nation from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, getting the people through that, and then causing the Red Sea to drown the enemy. Seen all of that, but here, when Moses saw this, he was terrified. You see, the God of Sinai is a God to be feared. We read it this morning in Psalm 97. He's the Lord most high. He's a just God. God is a God of law, a God of justice, and therefore a God of wrath and anger against sin, and therefore a God of judgment. So why, just making the application here to the original readers, why would anyone of the original readers want to go back into Judaism? I mean, every person has Nothing to expect from Sinai and trying to approach God and trying to have a relationship with God based upon some sort of works or religious activity. Anybody who's trying to approach God that way has the expectation of only one thing, and that's ultimate judgment. Because no person can perfectly fulfill the law's demands. Scripture is clear in the New Testament that if you violate even one aspect of the law, then you're guilty of all of it. Every person then is guilty of disobedience. So there's just nothing to expect from this mountain, Sinai, but judgment. There's very good reason to fear if you're trying to live at Mount Sinai. If your address is there, If you're trying to merit acceptance by God and salvation from sin, fear makes sense. Now, just to clarify something, the Sinai and the the law given, does it have a good purpose? Is it a good thing? And the answer is yes. It was a gracious gift from God to the people. It serves important purposes. It, 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 It helps us understand the character of God. And certainly there is, is help and instruction on, on how to live that would be a way to please God, but scripture helps us understand its most important purpose. The law of God is like a mirror. You look at the law and we we see ourselves. Not a, not a made-up version of ourselves, not the version of ourselves that you know we create in our own minds. Not that version. No, in God's law, we see ourselves as we really are, which is completely short of God's standard of perfect righteousness. So the result of God's law is that it leads then a person to be aware of their sinfulness and then to faith and repentance. And depending on God, the only source of deliverance, And that leads us to our discussion of the other mountain tonight. See, those who are followers of Christ, we've come to a different mountain. And verse 18 says, It's not Mount Sinai. We've abandoned Mount Sinai. And we've moved to Mount Zion. And as I said, number two, we'll call this the mountain of acceptance. You see, God is not only a God of law, He's not only a God of justice and judgment. He is a God of grace. He's a good God, a God of mercy. He's a God of love. And that's a way of of summarizing what Mount Zion represents. Mount Zion is a mountain of grace. It's a mountain of, of joy. It's a mountain of approachableness to God. So it's a mountain of acceptance by God. Mount Zion can represent the gospel then here. Therefore, true believers are those who have abandoned their address at Mount Sinai and they've come over to Mount Zion. Now, if people have embraced the gospel, Scripture tells us in one sense that is where we are. We're we're in Zion now. And yet, at the same time, Zion is presented as something that we're headed toward in the future. And so, the next verses of our text do mix those two ideas that there is the present experience of that, and yet there's something still to come, the future. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, so there we are in Christ, Mount Zion, and we have come to the city of the living God, but yet it's the heavenly Jerusalem Now, first of all, that is a strong adversative there in the Greek, the term but. But you have come. This strong adversative indicates that this mountain called Zion is significantly different than Sinai. But second, notice that the idea of a city now is interjected into this discussion. There's a reason for that. It goes back to what is found in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. There we find that Zion was the name of an area, a small area, where there was a hill that David captured. And he made that hill his royal residence. This was all about seven years after he became king. Also, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in a tent in Zion, So, because of that, this mountain called Zion became to be known as the special earthly dwelling place of God. God would refer it to it that way. One example of that is Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord, Yahweh, has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. And then, verse 14 of Psalm 132, he, he says it very clearly Here I will dwell. Then, before long, Mount Zion became synonymous with Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was therefore the city of God. It was the place of sacrifice. So Zion's a mountain, but Zion's also a city. It's a a mountain city, and it represents God's presence, the place where God graciously dwells with or lives with his people. Therefore, though it can represent the idea of the present, In other words, the fact that we are accepted by God if we come by faith and repentance to Christ, we are accepted by God. We do dwell in His presence, and yet there is this ultimate sense of where we're headed. The city represents heaven. Back in Hebrews 11, when it mentions Abraham in the Hall of Faith there in chapter 11, it it says that there's this city that Abraham in faith was looking toward, that's back in chapter 11 verse 10, for he, Abraham, was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And we know Abraham was a, a nomad, he lived in tents and he wandered around the land that God had promised to him, he was a pilgrim, but all the time he knew something, he knew he was part of something else a heavenly city. It was on that future existence that he kept the focus of his heart. He set his his gaze on that. And then if you look ahead in chapter 13 of Hebrews, you find the city mentioned, Hebrews 13, verse 14. And it says, we, we are seeking the city which is to come. So again, Sinai symbolizes law. Zion symbolizes Grace, we cannot be saved by law, but we can be saved by grace. Sinai is forbidding and terrifying. Zion and all it represents is inviting. It's gracious. Sinai is closed to all because no one can please God ultimately on God's, on Sinai's terms, perfect fulfillment of the law. But Zion, that mountain, is is open for people to come because Christ Jesus met all the terms of the law, lived the perfect life here on earth, perfectly obeying every aspect of the law, and even obeyed all the way to death, obeyed that part of the law, the law's demands for justice. Justice. Christ Jesus met the terms of all that, and He stands in the place of of anyone who will come to God then through Him. So, Zion uh, symbolizes this approachableness to God because it stands for forgiveness and life and freedom. And notice that the author considered the Jews to whom he was writing to be believers. I mean, he He did believe most of them were truly saved. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. They were already on that gracious mountain, already in the city of the living God, already a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we can say that about ourselves. We're we're there in one sense. Paul put it in terms of citizenship, Philippians 3 verse 20. I'm sure your mind's going there. For he says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, summarizing, ultimately, coming to Christ is coming to forgiveness and freedom and grace and joy, but coming to Christ is also coming to heaven. And it's the only way to go to heaven. And heaven is where our ultimate hope is. It's where our heritage is. Everything we love is is really there, not here. So for now, we are ambassadors on earth, and yet Scripture encourages us not to lose this perspective of the incomparable value of our heavenly inheritance, what's waiting for us. Romans 8 verse 18, for example. Paul even says that about sufferings, about the sufferings now. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So the author here says it several different ways. There's different designations that are all synonymous, whether we call it Mount Zion, whether we call it the city of God, whether we call it the heavenly Jerusalem, They are each an equal way to represent the new life we have in Christ under the new covenant. And it's enough to end it there, but the author of Hebrews doesn't. He goes. Even further in explaining, let me tell you more about what we come to. When we reach our ultimate destination, the heavenly city, let me just remind you what we're coming to and how wonderful it is that we know Christ. He says in verse 22, and to myriads of angels, verse 23 continues that thought to the general assembly. I believe the language there actually connects those two together. The term assembly at the beginning of verse 23 actually connects to the statement about angels at the end of verse 22. So it really is here the assembly of the angels. And the Greek term assembly means a very joyful gathering. It's a celebration, like a great festival, a joyful gathering of angels in heaven. We're headed there. How many of them? Well, the technical term is a bunch. Bunches of bunch, myriads, innumerable. You could translate that thousands by thousands. It's a company of angels that's impossible to count. By the way, scripture tells us that there were thousands of angels at Mount Sinai as well, at the giving of the law. It's just that at Sinai, it was not a joyful celebration. They weren't celebrating, they were blowing trumpets of judgment. But here, gathered in the heavenly city, it's the continual, ongoing celebration by myriads of of angels celebrating the glorious triumph of God's grace over sin. And all those who follow Christ will witness that, and they'll also witness this, verse 23, we come to this, the church of the firstborn. The word for church here is ekklesia. It is the familiar Greek term that essentially means an assembly or gathering, a congregation. But it's the New Testament term, the, the default term to refer to the people of God of this age, the age of the new covenant, the church age. Christ himself used this term, ekklesia, in Matthew 16, verse 18. Says I, he says to Peter, I, upon this rock, I will build my ekklesia, my church. Therefore, the apostolic authors of the New Testament, they constantly use this term to describe the body of Christ, the New Testament church, whether locally or all followers of Christ universally, either way. But back to our text, in our text, this ecclesia, the church in heaven is called the gathering of the firstborn. Why? Well, firstborn is a term that's related to inheritance. Inheritance. In a family of that day, the firstborn was the rightful heir of the inheritance. It wasn't because of of achievement, of doing anything special. They're the firstborn just because they were born first. The firstborn gets the inheritance. That would not have bode well for me. I'm the thirdborn. So that ruins the chances. Plus, I've done some research. My family Never had anything anyway. Our text says that heaven is a whole city, a whole family of firstborns. It ties in what we talked about this morning the doctrine of adoption. All, in one sense, Firstborns, we've come into our rights by being born, born again, born from above, as John 3 says, a spiritual birth that results, that spiritual activity, that spir- spiritual action of God, that sovereign act of His Spirit, created saving faith in our hearts as the response, and so we become children of God. John 1, verse 12, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. But Paul in Romans 8 verse 17 gives us more information about being a child of God. In Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, the ultimate firstborn. So this is about our eternal inheritance. It's a great gathering of the firstborn. And notice there's more even, verse 23, that all the names of the firstborns are enrolled in heaven. You know, Christ talked about that with his disciples. He he used words like this in Luke 10, verse 20. He encouraged his disciples with these words. He said, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In Revelation 21, verse 27, it talks about the Lamb's book of life and and Paul uses that term as well in Philippians 4.3, his fellow workers are those whose names are in the book of life. So what a thought that Scripture would present our eternal salvation this way, our, our right to our inheritance, our, our right to be citizens of this heavenly city of heaven. It presents it as our names being recorded in the heavenly register. And the recording is permanent. And we know that because grammatically the form of the verb enrolled here in our text is a perfect tense, and that's a way of emphasizing that the names inscribed in God's book can never and will never be removed. Never. And it gets better. Verse 23, God himself is in Zion. You've come to God, the judge of all. God is the one and only creator and sustainer of all things, but he's also the judge of all. Scripture says he's the judge before whom no creature is hidden. He's the one to whom all must give an account. So for the vast number of people in human history who reject the truth, this is immensely threatening to appear before the judge of all. But for the believer, the one who's a part of Mount Zion, the fact that God is the judge is not threatening at all to us. It's immensely reassuring because this judge is also our father. This is the father who provided his son to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, and that sacrifice makes our acceptance possible. Therefore, in coming to God, we're not just coming to a judge. We're coming to our heavenly Father who's merciful and gracious. He's the one that doesn't judge our people anymore. He's already judged our sin in Christ. He's the Father now who vindicates all his people. For the lost, God's throne is one of judgment. For us, it's a throne of grace. And we come to another group says in our text, the ones already enjoying the heavenly Zion, verse 23, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the term spirits here means the souls, the souls of those who lived and died and were saved prior to Christ is what this phrase refers to. Old Testament saints saved under the old covenant. Saved how? Some other way? No. Also saved by grace through faith. That's always been God's way. Like Abraham, he believed God, and so it was reckoned to him, counted to him, righteousness. They too are made perfect. They're glorified in heaven. And the amazing thing about Christ's sacrifice on the cross is that it it reached back to include them no less than it reaches forward to include all those under the new covenant. In other words, all of God's elect. It was for them that Christ tasted death. So they're there, Old Testament saints in heaven, awaiting the culminating moment of the resurrection of their bodies, in other words, their future glorified bodies. And then we find the climactic thought in verse 24, building to this, a crescendo. We come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Place last for emphasis here. Moses was a mediator. He was the mediator of the old covenant. But just remember, he's also also the one that stood in fear at Mount Sinai. Jesus, in contrast, is the one who takes away fear. Jesus is the one who opens the way for, for people to come in faith so, when we come to Mount Zion, yes, we come to Jesus. We come to our Savior, our Redeemer, the one and only mediator between man and God the Father. And how did He accomplish that wonderful act? Verse 24 says, We come to the sprinkled blood then. It's just reminding us, as a metaphor here, and that. Jesus mediated the new covenant this way by shedding his own blood. And so this blood stands in contrast to all the blood of all those animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament that were providing a a ceremonial cleansing, if you will, from sin so that they could continue to to serve God and, and relate to him. But it was never a final payment, it was never really effective in taking away the guilt of sin but it provided that ceremonial cleansing. It was always pointing, though, to, the, to this sprinkled blood, Christ's blood. So this blood is in contrast to all the, the blood of the animals of the Old Testament, but verse 24 says it's also in contrast to some other blood, the blood of Abel. What do we know about Abel? Well, Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. Why couldn't Cain please God? Because he wasn't Abel. Anyway, I'm sorry. I heard that. It's not in my notes. It's just I heard that many, many years ago, and it just came back. A little biblical humor, very little. What's interesting is how the author says that Abel's blood is speaking. That's a reference to something in Genesis. Genesis 4 verse 10. In Genesis 4.10, we find that God said this to Cain. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood was speaking, so to speak, loudly. Loudly about what? Sin. Consequences of sin. Sin. That was crying out for justice. And the point here is the blood of Jesus speaks even louder. It speaks even more powerfully. Because the blood of Christ speaks about a better covenant. It speaks of eternal redemption and not condemnation. It speaks of acceptance, not rejection. Abel's blood cries out for justice. That justice was satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ, and so his his blood ends out crying out for mercy and pardon. Again, the point is when we come to Mount Zion, we, we came to Jesus, and we came to the blood that was shed in our place. How different Mount Zion is The mountain of God's grace. So to summarize it again, Sinai symbolizes law, Zion symbolizes grace. Zion, forbidding, terrifying because the law confronts us with all these commandments and condemnation and judgment for failure to live it out. Sinai ends up being closed. You can't even Get on the mountain because no one can please God on Sinai's terms, perfect fulfillment of the law. But Zion is inviting and gracious because grace presents to us atonement and forgiveness and salvation. So I want to leave you with two closing implications of all this and summarize in just two words depending on what your need is tonight. Here are the closing implications summarized in these two words Number one, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've come to Mount Zion, here's the word for you, rest, rest. If you're saved, our text says you have come to Mount Zion. So think about that fact when you find yourself very aware that you still sin when you find yourself maybe even in despair over what we sometimes call our besetting sins, when you find yourself weighed down with weakness and doubt, anxiety, because in this text we find God showing you what he already sees in you, that you're residents of the heavenly city already, and someday you will be perfected there with all the others who have been saved by faith, don't get me wrong, now there's a lot of work to do in one sense. There's a lot of sin to be to battle now. There's a lot of sin to put off and a lot of biblical thinking and, and godly behavior to put on. In other words, there's a lot of obedience to pursue as God's people. And yet our final perfecting in Christ is so sure that the same author the writer of Hebrews could say this back in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are the sanctified ones. He's done it. So we're not just forgiven, we are safe. We are secure. And we're going to be made perfect in Christ. And God sees us now in Christ. That's our destiny by God's saving grace. So rest in the reality of that even as you go about seeking to obey. In fact, I would say it's because we can rest in all this that we can go about seeking to obey with joy and not fear. It's a joy to obey the Lord. It's not if you're thinking that I still got to perform I still got to perform, I'm not sure he completely accepts me, I'm pretty sinful." Someone else said, well, you know, you're far more sinful than you think you are, (laughs) and he knows it, but you're far more accepted than you think you are. We do need to obey. So rest in all this and it becomes a joy, rest in knowing that your failures are paid for. You, you can rest regardless of your past. What a thought. Here's my word for you tonight. If you're in Christ, rest. Number two, on the other hand, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't come to him in faith and repentance to be forgiven of your sin, then the closing implication word for you is Come. You know, in the last chapter of the Bible, we find Scripture's final invitation. It's Revelation 22, verse 17. Let the one who's thirsty soul thirst, who's found that this world does not satisfy. Let the one who's thirsty, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, let that one come. And you find your soul satisfied, your thirst quenched, you find a new identity, you find purpose, you find hope. It's the invitation for you to abandon Sinai, any form of Sinai, any form of performance and works and trying to merit something from God, to try to get him to accept you and to love you. Give that up. Abandon all of that and come to Mount Zion. Abandon human effort Because that mountain of human effort is a mountain of judgment and fear. Come to the mountain of divine provision, it's the mountain of acceptance. Do you know that each person is going to be judged on the basis of one of these two mountains? You'll either be judged by Mount Sinai, the law, or by grace. Either be judged by your own works, which are no value before God, as Isaiah 64 calls it, filthy garment, or be judged by Christ's perfect work, by the provisions of Sinai, of Zion. One of the two. You answer it yourself, which mountain do you live on? Which of these mountains is your identity? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior tonight, so many ways that your perfect, wonderful, sufficient, inerrant, inspired word gives us glimpses of what it means. And here's another one. Thank you for that. Lord, we're so grateful that you're a God who loves to save believing, repentant sinners, that no one who comes to you in faith and repentance, no one do you turn away who comes that way through Christ. But Lord, our world is full of people trying to make it on their own, trying to get accepted by God, usually a, a God of their own design, a God of their, of their own definition, or a God, the God of self. But the invitation is there to come to Zion and find freedom and hope and find rest in Christ. May you help us as your people, to keep going back to who you are and what you've done on our behalf, that that's where our hope is, that's where our assurance is. Lord, free us in that sense so that we understand that obedience is, is not a chore then, it's a, it's a duty that's a joy, that we can please you, that you do accept even our meager efforts of that to serve you and to please you. What a thought that the perfect God would accept those meager efforts on our part, and be pleased with that. Thank you for that. All because of Christ, but open the hearts of anyone here tonight who has never come to Zion. Open their hearts to come to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.